I would say that language requires grammar just like it requires sounds, but it's no more, um, language is no more just a series of vowels and consonants than it is a grammar. Language is about meaning, and the only way to approach meaning is through a theory of meaning that involves uh, signs and symbols. We've known this since Sextus Empiricus and um, the, the, the medieval grammarians, and we had you know, the so-called dark ages. The medieval grammarians were some of the best of all time. Um, and getting back to the roots and looking at these traditions and not thinking that uh, the discovery of grammar is either new or even all that crucial. Uh, to understanding language. These are very important uh, thoughts to investigate. Welcome to The Story of Language, an original podcast series about language, linguistics, cognition, and culture. My name is Christian Saunders, and I am an English teacher and throughout this series, I will be in discussion with Dan Everett, linguist, anthropologist, philosopher, and author. In this episode, we talk about the big questions in language acquisition. Is there a language acquisition device? Is language learned or innate? How does child learning differ from adult learning should syntax be the basis for language analysis? And are humans really the only things on the planet with language, or do other animals have it too? If you would like to contact us, you can find us on Twitter at Story of Language, or you can send us an email at storyoflanguage at gmail.com. This is episode 8 of The Story of Language. What do you think about the idea of there being some sort of language acquisition device, which is a physical thing, which resides in our body? I wrote a long review article in the Journal of Linguistics, which is the top, at least it was then, the top linguistics journal in the UK, and one of the top in the world, uh, where I gave a long uh, analysis of the book, The Language Organ. Uh, by Stephen Anderson and, and David Lightfoot. And I said that if they're accurate, Chomsky needs to receive the Nobel Prize for anatomy because he has discovered an organ that has never been observed before in the history of the study of the human brain. And in fact, if you go through their book, they never discover anything about any such organ. There's no place in the brain. They talk about sometimes it's knowledge, sometimes it's specialized tissue. And they're not even consistent on it. So then they wrote a long reply, um, which consisted primarily in that they, they had taken undergraduate classes in biology. Uh, and, uh, and then I wrote a reply to that, saying that, uh, you know, if, if knowledge is an organ, um, then all, uh, all beliefs are organs. You know, every, you know knowledge is a warranted belief. So all whatever I know, burritos, uh, driving, all of these, these are organs. Um, so it doesn't seem to really explain anything. It doesn't correspond to anything. I mean, Ange Angelina uh, Frederici um, uh, 
has written a lot. She is a pro-Chomsky neurolinguist, and I, I have a long review of her work in my book, How Language Began, in which I show that the things she's talking about have multiple functions. And as soon as you find a part of the brain that has a multiple function, then it doesn't, it isn't specialized for language, even if that's where language is found. Uh, the, the interesting thing about Evelina's work is that her language networks don't seem to have multiple functions. They seem to be dedicated exclusively to language. So, so the, here's the thing. If there's, a, if there's an innate language organ and it's programmed there, you expect to find hereditary diseases that pick out only language because they could damage this organ. Um, well, I try to show in the book how language began that there are no such diseases. None of this stuff is hereditary. I look at aphasia and autism and these things. Um, whereas in Evelina's work, she shows that after you've learned a language, if you suffer damage to this part of the brain, then your language will be irremediably affected. Um, whereas if you get damage to the brain prior to learning language, it won't be. Um, and and this is a problem for nativism. This is a this is a problem because um, if something's in the brain, it ought to be able to be damaged. Uh, there ought to be some sort of hereditary. There are hereditary problems with just about everything else we're born with. You know, from ha lacking a finger to having six fingers to being blind. So you would expect there to be people born who can are function. Everything is normal, but they cannot learn a language. They can hear it, they can, they can make all the sounds, they cannot learn the language, but that's the only thing about them. Hmm. I mean, obviously there are some kind of diseases like maybe autism or you know, things on the spectrum which, which can affect your ability maybe to learn language to a high level. Um, and obviously then you have like severe retardation. The, the thing about autism and aphasia, autism is not, I mean, that's just a name we give to a wide range of ailments, uh, which largely, as far as I can tell, and I have a chapter on autism that I had checked out with autism researchers and how language began. Um, the, the, that's why it's called the autism spectrum, because, you know, it, and it seems to be a series of social problems more than anything else. These, they don't seem to be linguistic problems. Uh, the severe cases, uh, language is affected in in my analysis because soci sociality is affected. Um, in in aphasia, um, you know, we have terms like Broca's aphasia. We have a specific language impairment. We have uh, uh, Wernicke's aphasia. But I try to show that none of these really exist as I mean, they're always part of something else. Specific language impairment is a funny term because it is, um, uh, it's like a Worfian thing, you know, where language affects the way we think. So we think if there's a specific language impairment, that's obviously evidence that language is innate, but there really is no such thing as specific language impairment. And I actually debated someone in the Netherlands about this um, in front of a large audience. And the audience was really upset that I was saying, they said, I never see you at these conferences. How do you know if you never go to the conferences? I said, well, you know, you read the literature and you find out that when person has, an, has a problem X, if they also have a problem Y and Z and that they always have these multiple problems, it's not specific to X. <laughs> uh, that, that's just a fact. I mean, there's nothing, I don't need to go to a conference to think that through.
I've actually seen some people on the internet who call you uh, a Warfian because they feel like, because you're trying to say that culture can affect your language, that that somehow is tied in with this Warfian idea of... Yeah, that's a very, yeah, a lot of people do that. You know, I, as I tell them, Caleb Everett works on Warf, Daniel Everett doesn't. <laughs> um, you know, so, so the language and culture have a symbiotic relationship. Uh, in in my view and in Caleb's view um, and in many other people's views. Um, but I have, and I believe that the effect goes both ways. Language can affect, and I've written papers on this, language can affect the way we think. But it's also the case that our culture can affect our language. I'm not concerned with the research as my son is showing how language affects the way we think. I'm concerned about showing how culture affects our language. Um, and thereby if it also affects the way we think so this the cognition culture and language are are inextricably linked in the human species and there's no one-way causality so i'm not a warfian um you know nobody's a strong warfian that believe you know i mean science wouldn't be possible if strong warfianism were, were correct right because when murray gell-mann discovered or invented or whatever the quark and he took this term quark from james joyce um, and he applied it to physics, he went beyond the bounds of language. He found a concept for which there was no name, and he gave it a name. Um, and, and that is not how Worf's world works. Okay, so science wouldn't be possible if Worf were completely correct. And I've said this in all of my, in fact, the people who are real Worfians often get upset with me because they see what I do as undermining Worfianism. You know, I would say these people should just read read my books instead of, um, I mean, it's just, I, I had a guy call me, he wanted to interview me about Worf, and I said, hey, you got the wrong Everett. Uh, I don't do that. And he said, well, you've written this and this. I said, yeah, not, none of that has anything to do with Worfianism. So you, you, you can't win, really, can you? Because people accuse you of being Worfian, but then the real Worfians are upset with you for not being real, uh, real Worfians. <laughs> yeah, this is the way it is. And one of the interesting things, I, I keep going off and on of Facebook because I keep, you know, I like social contact, especially in these times of isolation, but I've come to the conclusion that I'd rather watch a movie with a glass of whiskey than go on Facebook. I, that's, I don't need that. The level of cacophony there is, is, uh, is, is really astounding. And, and everybody thinks you mean this. I had, you know, somebody will get mad at you for saying something but you intended the opposite so i'm beginning to think that uh looking at the scientific literature looking at these social media and things that dialogue is not always worthwhile <laughs> well i think um social media tends to always promote and encourage dialogue that's very kind of you know acerbic and 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 very like i'm right and you're wrong it's really like that you yeah know? yeah but since I know that I'm right and everybody else is wrong, I don't need to go on social media. <laughs> In other words, I'm, I'm as bad as anybody else, so I should not be on it. Before we talk more about, about language acquisition, um, maybe it's kind of useful to define what exactly language is. And, and I think maybe that's difficult because where do we sort of draw the line between what language is and what is communication, especially if we we're not just talking about humans, but we're talking about maybe animals like, you know, uh, birds communicating. Is that language when they're singing? 
Well, this this is something I address in, in how language began, but I'll start off with, in in the view that has dominated linguistics ever since Chomsky came on the scene, language is a recursive grammar it, that generates all and only the sentences uh, that that people uh, can use. Um, so, so it's it's you know when when Chomsky says that the colorless green ideas sleep furiously is grammatical. Um, he he means that it's part of the language, but it just doesn't happen to have any meaning. And his view of this has changed over the years. So that definition of language doesn't rule out meaning, but meaning is not central to it. It's, it's basically grammar. John Searle has noted this in a lot of publications. Many other people have observed this. There are a um, couple of recent publications by good mathematical linguists coming out, uh, reviewing this and, and arguing this. So, my view of language is is very different. You know, I gave a talk at the Hungarian Academy of Sciences that irritated people because I gave this definition. Uh, but so, and it's related to communication. So communication is the transfer of information by signs. And signs include icons, indexes, and symbols. Um, whereas I would claim that language is the transfer of information by symbols. And symbols are a special kind of sign. So, so all animals communicate. But I would argue that only human beings communicate uh, primarily with symbols. I'm not saying even that other animals lack symbols. I'm simply saying they don't have a symbol generating mechanism. Their symbols are different uh, if they have them. But we, we generate symbols freely. So if 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 we if we say that that birds for example communicate and they're communicating through through song let's we choose song as an example um you know there's there's been some research that shows that you can take a, a baby bird away from from its its mother and you can put it in isolation and the bird will always produce the the correct type of song for its species even though it's never heard that song before no one's ever taught it the song does that not kind of show that that communication and perhaps language exists as a physical thing in our body? Well, there certainly are. Um, there certainly nobody denies nativism in a broad sense. We are born with different abilities. One thing about birds is that they learn local dialects, um, so they have a they have a range of sounds they can produce and patterns. So one could say that there is a bird grammar and there are bird dialects, but, and so that would be a problem if I were a Chomsky, and I would have to show that their grammars lack recursion. That would be the magic thing. Um, although I have a paper by an Israeli zoologist uh, in which he argues that mouse discovery procedures rely heavily on a recursive method of thinking and approaching the environment. So, so anyway, um, they have a, a recursive discovery procedure. But let's, let's get back to the birds. I would argue that uh, the evidence suggests that birds are not communicating in symbols. They have a grammar for the communication of icons and indexes. Indexes being like pointing to certain things, you know, so alarm calls are indexes. Um, icons could be uh, longer sounds for uh, greater food resources. So we see this in bee dancing. Uh, bees come in and the, 
and the, the intensity of their dance is iconic. It reflects the intensity of the honey source. The way that they're orient, the way that they orient themselves is indexical. It points to the honey source. So bees communicate, and they have a grammar, we could even argue, but they communicate icons and indexes. Uh, and if there are symbols, um, which means a symbol, the, the biggest difference with a symbol is that a symbol refers to a generalization. You know, that's according to Peirce. A symbol refers to a generalization. So man is a symbol because it refers to the generalization of male homos, uh, homo sapiens or homo erectus. Anyway, uh, so, so birds can have grammar, birds can have dialects, uh, bees can have the same, other creatures can have the same. But when you analyze the vast majority, if not all of what they're communicating are icons and indexes. Um, they're pointing or they're representing uh, uh, by correspondence. An, in, an, an icon like a painting is a correspondence between visual features of the painting, which it possesses in, innate, inherently, and visual features of the thing that it's representing. So an icon is, is the simplest of all signs, and then you get an index, which is a way of, of pointing or indicating as, you know, so all animals use icons and indexes, and they may organize them grammatically. Only humans regularly generate productively symbols, and so only human language is defined largely by symbols. The grammars don't have to be complicated. You get everything from English to Pitaha. Um, but the symbols of Pitaha are just as rich as the symbols of English. Um, and so, um, so for me, grammar, human language is, is not defined by grammar. That's a minor part of it. Um, uh, it's not even a significant part of it, where, whereas for Chomsky, it is the defining feature. Of, uh, and so for me, um, symbols, communicating by symbols is language. So somebody said, so you mean that a stop sign has a language or a red light, red, yellow, and green. That, that's a language because those are symbols. Well, the entire object is a symbol. I mean, it takes a bit of analysis, but that it uses icons and, and indexes. Green is an index of action go it's interpreted by an action they don't have to necessarily be symbols but even if they were symbols they're only possible in the larger context of a symbol generating language so they're not counter examples they're simply subparts of language you know the word go is not a is not a language it's just a symbol within a language but you could you, you could see how 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 somebody could could say well if 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 bees can 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 be born with this, um, you know, this kind of this the wiggle dance, you know, which which changes intensity and direction. And if birds can be born with song, then it doesn't seem to be a great leap that humans can be born with 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 this with this language acquisition device. Yeah, it's not an implausible idea. I would not say that it's an implausible idea. I would say that it's empirically unnecessary. You simply don't, it doesn't do any work. Um, and so if that's William of Ockham there, don't multiply entities beyond necessity. So don't have, don't propose X if we don't need X. Okay. Um, so um, don't make a, don't give me a knife if a spoon is all I need. You know, I mean, it's, it, it just is, a, it's, it goes beyond what we need. But the other thing is in my book, Dark Matter of the Mind, I argue that evolution has moved humans 
as far as I can tell, more and more away from instinct and more and more towards cognitive freedom. Doesn't necessarily mean freedom of the will, but it means that we have more problem solving capacity. And, you know, so for example, corn has roughly double the amount of genes of humans. Uh, so, so why does corn have so many genes? Well, one explanation, one I propose, is that it has all its problems solved for it. Um, and so, you know, it, it doesn't have to think about anything. You know, these are, it's what uh, Charles Sanders Peirce would have called phylogenetic habits. Uh, it just, or its species, that's the way it behaves. It's a habit of behaving. Um, and, and the genes are needed for this. But, you know, start to flood the cornfield and they don't get up and walk away. Um, that corn is, everything's worked out for it. So if something happens that wasn't worked out for it, it dies. Um, humans have gotten fewer and fewer instincts of this type. That doesn't mean they don't have any. It doesn't mean they don't have anything innate, but it means that uh, we have much greater freedom. So, so for example, if there were a language acquisition device, if there were something on the genes that told us how to learn a language, then once again, we would expect, since everything genetic can be affected, right, every, every genetic aspect of us can be uh, mutated, that we would expect to find mutated populations that can learn only their language. They had a language acquisition device, but it only works for them, right? Um, now, uh, Chomsky argues against this. I mean, I've confronted him with this fact. He said, well, you know, it's just, it's just grammar. But I said, yeah, but let's say that they have a grammatical quirk and, and it would make it faster for them to learn their language if they didn't need to figure that out. If it was just a genetic mutation, we know that people adapt to their environments all the time. Some people have said language changes too fast for this to happen, but that's actually not the case because prodrop, which is the ability to omit pronouns that you find in Spanish and Portuguese, but not in French and not in English, subject pronouns, that is. So in English, I can say it is raining, but I can't say is raining. Whereas in Spanish, you wouldn't say it is raining. I mean, what is it? You would just say está lloviendo. Uh, but uh, um, so why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be some sort of pressure to evolve so that you only have prodrop? You can't learn a language that requires those pronouns in there. The advantage is you learn your language faster. Well, actually, we know that prodrop is 6,000 years old. This goes back at least 6,000 years. So you find cultures that, that can uh, break down the enzyme lactase after the infancy. We are, most of us from, from Northern Europe, and a few places in Africa have this ability to digest lactase afterwards, but most people don't. Now, how old is that? That's about 3,000 years old. So prodrop could have had a genetic effect because we know that genes can change in less than 3,000 years. Tibetans have different abilities to uh, process oxygen uh, because at high altitudes than we do, and that's about 3,000 years old. And these are all cultural facts, right? Culture comes in and changes well, you can say the Tibetan is an ecological effect, but it's caused by culture. Um, Caleb Everett has shown that languages adapt to the humidity, they, they adapt to the altitude, they adapt to the cold, and so sound systems change according to these external factors. Um, and they don't need even 3,000 years.
So 6,000 years is plenty of time for this to evolve. But, but here's the thing, if you actually believe in universal grammar, you predict that not all people can learn all languages. That sounds bizarre, but you predict that there should be local uh, genetic variations that uh, make it harder to learn one language than another. Some of my, my critics have tried to show such cases as proof, but they really haven't shown any such cases. Whereas if I'm right, where it's a general cognitive ability of human beings, um, you don't expect to find any human that can't learn any, any human language because it's not specific in the genes. It's, it's a part of our general cognitive abilities. I, I wanted to just go back a little bit to something you said before, which was really interesting, which was that, um, that, that for example, if, if, you have, if you do take a bird away from its mother, it might produce that song, but because it doesn't, it's not because it's not sharing that song with with a community, uh, because it has no kind of shared symbols. It, it's almost not language, uh, especially by your definition. No, it's not language. It, it doesn't matter whether it's sharing it or not. Um, it just matters that um, it's it's not a symbol. So so the connection in an an icon and an index, these are directly related to the things they refer to. An index by pointing, an icon by representing uh, visually, uh, usually could be sound, like sound symbolism. Uh, but sound symbolism, ironically, has nothing to do with symbolism. It is a bad term that linguists who don't understand the difference between icons, indexes, and symbols use. Sound symbolism, the proper name should be sound iconicity. Uh, it's just a form of icon. Paintings on cave walls are not symbols. They're icons. They're representing something. Um, they can take on symbolic effects, but a symbol primarily is something in which the meaning and the form used to represent the meaning and the thing that interprets them, this relationship, this triadic relationship between a thing that interprets, an interpretant, person would call it, and a sign, the, the physical manifestation, and the uh, object, this relationship between the object, the interpretation, and the sign is um, an culturally generated in most cases. There are a few exceptions, but by and large, and that's the thing that makes human language special, we culturally generate these at will. So there's nothing necessary in that connection. So if you, if you find a bird that can only make certain sounds and certain things, well, sure, that could be an eight. But if you examine how they're doing it, they're not symbols. There's no freedom there. Um, there. It's a closed class of patterns that they use for communication. If grammar was all that there were to communication and merge was the only thing that grammar really, that was the core of grammar, what Chomsky calls the basic operation, then, then it would be no more sophisticated than bird language, and, and birds could have language and humans have language. But if it's symbols, then merge and bird languages are pretty much secondary to the issue of whether humans have language or animals have language. So symbols are really the threshold that um, you have to get to before you can talk about language in my analysis. And, 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 in, and it's not just mine, it's, it's a tradition that goes all the way back to, um, I'm reading right now what I consider to be the first careful exposition of symbols and signs, which is Sextus Empiricist back in the second century AD. Um, so this has been around for a while. So this is not some new tradition I'm trying to throw on the world. This is something that 
that was in fact the primary tradition until the computer and machine translation started to come about in the late 50s and people were mainly focused on finding algorithms that would take one sentence and put it into another so grammar became essential and of course Chomsky grew up in this era well well that, that's that's another thing I, I wanted to to talk about which was um conlangs you know these constructed languages and you know they vary for from constructed languages that have been made uh for alien languages in movies or people who make them just you know for fun as a hobby and there's there's one in particular which is which i think is really interesting called fifth um and it, it's it uses something called a stacked grammar. So basically, it's, uh, it w operates on a principle called LIFO. So it's the last thing in the stack is the first thing out of the stack. Yeah, Chomsky analyzed these patterns exactly in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, so you, you stack up these kind of words, and then you have operators. Push down a comma. Yeah, and you have operators which you can use on the stack, which, for example, might might duplicate one of the elements in the stack or join it together or and th these languages work but they also violate um what seem what what people claim are kind of the universal uh laws of of, of human language yeah because they're much, they're much more difficult cognitively um you don't expect to find these kinds of things in human languages because they're much more difficult cognitively. There are better grammars. Um, and, and so, but this is again, getting into the issue, buying into this idea that grammar is central to language. Um, I don't care what kind of grammar they have, if they don't use symbols, it's not a language. And, I don't, and if they do use symbols, it is a language, as long as they have the ability to put them in order. You just need a way to interpret the symbols. In, in, um, you can always interpret symbols if you invent them in isolation. But to interpret them in a, in a larger context where you have multiple symbols, you require a bit of grammar. But as I argue, the only grammar you really need is to put them in the, an agreed upon order. So agent first, verb second, and patient third. I mean, that's fine. That's all you need. But so is, is grammar basically just an abstraction? Grammar is a way of organizing symbols for, for, uh, to facilitate interpretation. And so if I just, if I could just throw out words randomly, which is often what the gorillas do that are taught symbols. So gorillas can learn symbols, but they don't uh, seem to be able to organize them uh, in, a, in a fairly regular way. So it becomes difficult to interpret this word salad that comes out of their mouth. Um, and so you find very generous researchers saying, oh, look, he said this. But the only reason you, because, you know, you sort of know the gorilla. You know, my dog says things to me all the time, but really, she's not saying anything. And I've never seen any evidence that a dog can learn symbols. So people claim dogs can learn up to a thousand symbols. Dogs learn icons and indexes. Uh, they learn to recognize individual objects. And if they, look, if they look similar to other objects, they can recognize this kind of thing. But they don't learn arbitrary associations or, or better word for it than arbitrary is conventional. Now, I have a debate going with a friend of mine who's a philosopher at Indiana University, and uh, he claims that they do learn symbols, but I don't think that's right. But I, do, I wouldn't say it's impossible for an animal to learn a symbol. What I would say is that animals uh, don't have culture, so they're unable to freely generate symbols. And you have to be able to freely generate symbols to have, have a language. And you also need to be able to 
have some sort of grammar to insert those symbols in so that you can interpret larger and larger groups of symbols um, with minimal ambiguity. And, and so that's what animals can't do. They can't, if they, if they can learn a symbol, it's, they're very few and far between. They're not productive with them at all. And they can't learn because of short-term memory, because of the cognitive demands of grammars. They can't learn um, much that goes beyond two or three symbols. For, for, for better or for worse, obviously, one of your, your main um, points of contention against uh, universal grammar is, 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 the, is recursion. And, but you've, you've, I mean, you've said to me many times and you've said that, um, that you don't argue that, that, that the Peter Hard, for example, can think recursively that they just don't express recursion um, in their in their grammar. But, um, you know, maybe you could argue that if you can think recursively, um, if and if if language, you know, is reflects our thinking process, then then doesn't that if we reverse engineer that thinking, doesn't it mean that at the end of the day, because language reflects thought, and if the way we think comes from our you know, our innate structure that, you know, we, we see objects and, and, you know, uh, we, we, we see, we feel, we see actions. Does, does that not mean that it's innate? Uh, no. Uh, and, and there are several reasons for that. I mean, rec the claim about recursion, um, in the original article, um, by Chomsky, Hauser and Fitch in science and in subsequent articles, and in Chomsky's own interviews about me in the grammar of happiness, which they didn't, well, they showed part of those. They didn't show them all in the movie. I saw them all. He's arguing about grammar, the, that language is based on a recursive grammar. So it doesn't matter whether they think that way or not. If you find a language that doesn't have a recursive grammar, that claim is just wrong. Now, if you want to claim, you want to alter the claim and you want to say that recursion is required for grammar but it doesn't have to show up in grammar, well, then that also doesn't say anything, right? It's, it's uh, and I have a paper, a very brief little paper that I posted on the internet about the logic of that claim. If you wanna claim that something is, is essential for language, basically either it has to appear in language or it's irrelevant. You cannot, so let's say that Peter Ha is an exception. Everybody says, okay, Peter Ha is an exception. Uh, the people who are willing to go that far. Most people say I'm a liar. Uh, but let's say that that is an exception. Um, so what does that show? It just shows there's an exception. Well, could there be another exception? Well, sure, if there's one exception, there could be another. Could all languages be exceptions? Well, in principle, yes. Um, so it's not really necessary for language. It's like saying that all swans are white, but we'll set aside the case of the black swan because that isn't fit. I think to give another example, um, like... With, with the case of, of nouns, like we seem to have this innate ability to separate objects into distinct kind of classes. Like, you know, we know that birds are kind of one category of, of thing, you know, they have wings and they fly and then, you know, trees are a different category. And I can't imagine a situation where, where any human would ever kind of conflate those two categories. Nor any other animal. Or any other animal, Pat. Yeah, exactly. So if, if, if the ability to, to create categories and maybe express those as nouns is, is kind of something innate, 
does that not is that not evidence more evidence for you know a language acquisition device no i mean unless you want to give it to squirrels and say they also have it because they also categorize the world around them i mean the in in fact culture after culture categorizes the world differently not radically differently at all times but they they do use different classification systems um and they and also as as i've shown in many papers and in fact another one i'm writing now for uh, another volume which is that peter has you can have concepts for which you have no words but you can't have words for which you have no concepts so the the decision about what's in um what's in a language is a cultural decision the ability to categorize is not human specific the ability to have language is human specific as long as we have a careful distinction between communication and language and and so the question about categorization doesn't really get us any closer to an exp- exp- because what we do with our categories is not simply index them or or make representations of them we have symbols that represent whole categories that are generalizations so animals generalize but they don't make symbols for those generalizations not in the conventional sense i mean so you could say that an alarm call is a generalization so any creature that that meets a certain uh, description is going to trigger an alarm call by us you know by vervet monkeys or you know whatever but that doesn't mean it's a symbol it simply means that that call indexes this sort of broad generalized thing but there is no uh, con- no no word in in other in other creatures repertoires no no symbol that represents this generalized thing so they can talk about this generalized thing they just get this impression which they it's a category that they have but they have nothing in their language no way about talking about it in their language if a doctor you know is checking your reflexes and hits you in the knee and your leg goes out then your leg interpreted that and and the interpretation was moving that's what purse would have called an action interpretation i mean you see the same thing if you see a stoplight and you press your foot on the brakes you didn't think oh that's a stop you know just put it's an action interpretation um so animals have action interpretations but they don't have symbolic representation and they don't have symbolic uh uh interpretations or what purse would have called logical interpretations and and uh humans this is what distinguishes us from animals so it's not the ability to categorize certainly that is an innate ability that we share that's that is evolutionarily ancient it goes back snakes i mean reptiles have it is before mammals ever appeared this this existed you know i mean you can even make the case that plants have the ability to generalize and come up with certain kinds of you know purse said that the entire universe is mind the difference is that its habits are all formed it's effete mind um there's nothing else for it to learn whereas we you know we're we're forming our habits and and so we we still need a lot more freedom uh so humans are part of the natural world we we share most of our properties almost all of our properties with other species gorillas and um and yet the symbol has transformed us into the most powerful creature on the planet and the discovery of the symbol i argue goes back to homo erectus m- m- much earlier in this conversation you talked a little bit about how the kind of machine translation and and the rise of computing 
kind of fed into this a, a lot of these theories about about linguistics. So, like thinking about translation and and about um, the ability to like let's say take a book and then you know if somebody's bilingual then they can take that book and they can translate it into into that language is if if there's no limit to that process in terms of um, you know if you can take any source language and translate it into any target language does that not mean that you know all human languages have this these these common properties uh, there are a couple of things a few things to say about that first of all uh, you can't do that uh, you can't translate anything from one language into any other language um, that you know I, I spent many years uh, misguided years as a Bible translator and it turns out you cannot translate uh, Jesus loves you and died to give you a wonderful life uh, into most languages okay um, and and th these concepts are culturally based and so if the culture doesn't have any place for that concept for example um, I, I went to, I gave an example in in dark matter of the mind um, I'm going to borrow ten thousand dollars from the bank of mom and dad to pay off my college debts you cannot say that in Pinaha. They don't have words for numbers. They don't have a word for mother. They don't have a word for father. They don't have a word for college. That doesn't translate. You can't say that. Um, and there's no way it can be said until the culture changes so dramatically that all those concepts come in. Now, I'm not saying that they could never do that. So this is not translation as impossible for any time in the history of a language. But there are certain times at time T1 where translation between language X and Y is impossible. So it's not, you can't do that. The other thing is a lot of the machine translation, uh, John Searle showed its problems uh, about 40 years ago in his famous Chinese room experiment uh, in which he said, let's imagine that, you know, I'm, I'm getting symbols. I'm standing in a big head. It's a big metal head and I'm back there and I have a list of instructions. And in, in one ear comes um, a symbol and it's Chinese. It's a Chinese letter, uh, word, and I've got a, a list of instructions that tells me to pull out the following English words and put them out the mouth of this mechanical head. And uh, I'm always, I can do it really fast and I'm really accurate. And everybody outside is satisfied. Do I understand any of the language? No, I'm just following rules. So, um, and that got a lot of, you know, people say, oh yeah, well you are understanding the language. That's all understanding means, but that's stupid. Uh, you're not understanding the language, and the reason is you're treating all the symbols of both languages as indexes. You get uh, you get a squiggly line in the ear, and you match it with other kinds of lines, and those are indexes of things, but you don't know. You're just matching indexes. You're not using symbols. These are never-to-use symbols, and if you don't have symbols, you are not understanding. Um, so you can perform a lot of tasks just based on indexes. So if I see if I smell smoke, I might run the other way to avoid a fire. No symbol was involved. That's just my animal instinct. Um, uh, you know, I may interpret uh, great fear by pissing my pants. Uh, that's just an action interpretation that doesn't require any symbols. Um, so a lot of the, the discussions, unfortunately, over the last 50 years have been extremely deficient in understanding what they're talking about because they have ignored this centuries-old um, understanding of signs and symbols and how we think these ways. And when you throw out this, you've thrown out, ironically, 
our so-called advances in linguistics have thrown out the greatest conceptual tools and advanced cognitive advances in the study of language that were ever made, which is uh, the study of signs, semiosis, and, and try to work without it. Um, the, the one thing linguists don't like about semiosis is that it is not specific to humans. It's not even specific to uh, uh, sentient creatures. It's found throughout the universe. So it just means that language is a little subset of a bigger, much, much bigger picture. And that bothers some people. They make their living telling everybody that language is unique in the universe. But it, you know, symbols are unique to humans, perhaps. No, not even completely that. But, but language is just uh, the transfer of information by symbols. Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit more about um, language acquisition, specifically the difference between children and adults. So um, I've got Adele Goldberg's book here, Explain Me This. Great book. Uh, amazing book. And, and she, there's this great little sentence in the book. It says, um, how is it that native speakers know to avoid certain expressions while nonetheless using language in creative ways? It's no exaggeration to say that this basic question has bedeviled linguists and psychologists for the past four decades. Um, and th this, you know, part of this, this bedeviling has been uh, this idea, which was labeled the poverty of the stimulus, right? Which was that children do not get enough overt correction. They do not get enough input to possibly produce the quality and the quantity of language that they do. So therefore... Language must come from, language must be innate. Yeah, the Berkeley psychologist, uh, I think he's Professor Emeritus now, Dan Slobin, uh, calls this the poverty of the imagination rather than the poverty of stimulus. Um, it has been shown time and time again that negative input is used and it can be used. It has been shown time and time again that the amount of information that children get is almost certainly enough to learn their language. I mean, there, there are famous papers by Jeff Pullum and his uh, former uh, deceased wife, Barbara Schultz, um, on the poverty of stimulus, where they lay out the problems. There is, um, there is a series of papers from King's College, London, about problems with the concept of innate. Just the very concept of what it means to be innate, for something to be there. So this is, it's simply not the case that there is that the poverty of stimulus is a knockdown argument. The other thing about the poverty of stimulus argument, which I've, you know, you take Chomsky's classic example. Um, so it's the man is here and you want to ask a question yet with a yes, no answer. So you say, is the man here? So Chomsky says, so the children, the child might think, take the first verb and move it to the left and you get a question. So now we get the man who is tall is here. And we want to ask a yes, no question. So we say, is the man who is tall here? But we do not say, is the man who tall is here? Um, and so Chomsky says, see there, they know innately the difference between embedded and non-embedded sentences, matrix and embedded. That is a silly example. Because what is it that children are really doing? If you listen to the intonation, which people act as though language is all typed, you know, like it's never actually spoken. Sure, if you leave the intonation out, that's a mystery. But new information <clears throat> is marked in almost every language by higher pitch or greater loudness. So when I say the man is here, here has a falling and a higher tone. Um, 
the man who is tall is here, it's the same thing. So um, the predicate has a higher tone because it introduces the new information. The relative clause almost always has a lower tone because it's giving old information. Who is here, the man who is here is tall. I only use that relative clause in most cases because you and I know what we're talking about. The relative clause is the shared information. So it's always gonna get the lower intonation because it doesn't stand out. So now we come back to the question. Is the man here? I'm asking question about new information. I'm not asking question about old information. The man who is tall is here. Now, what am I gonna ask a question about? I'm not gonna ask a question about who is tall because that's the part we already know. I'm gonna ask a question about is here. And that's marked by higher pitch. So kids don't have to know diddly squat about main versus subordinate clauses. They simply have to pick up on the pitch marking of new information. And they also have to pay attention to the context and know this is the new information. So they're asking questions about new information, case closed, plenty of evidence. There shows nothing about anything innate except the ability to hear pitches and, and eventually recognize new information. But these are, you know, I can also recognize new recipes. And I mean, th th these are just general cognitive properties. They're nothing specific to language. So another thing about, the, so people say, so you think, Chomsky says this, so you think my daughter is no different from a rock because rocks don't learn language and my daughter is. Well, that's pretty silly. Uh, yeah, I think your daughter's not a rock or your granddaughter or how far, how many generations it goes these days. So this is not hardly a knockdown convincing argument. Um, that my granddaughter is not a rock. But what it does mean is that, um, yeah, there's a biological basis to human behavior. The question is, is it specific to language? And the answer is no. There's just no evidence that it's specific to language. There's no evidence from studies of the brain. There's no evidence from studies. I mean, take Broca's area. That, that brain that, that Broca studied is still in a vat. And people who look at it say it wasn't even Broca's area that was damaged. You know, we don't know what it means to say after all these years what something is local in the brain very well. We're getting better and better at that. I mean, Evelina Federinko's work is getting quite good at it. And her experiments are so beautifully designed and, and use so many subjects from so many different languages, a lot more than 16 subjects. We're talking about hundreds of subjects from lots of languages and lots of controls, very well worked out scientifically. So there is a language network. And so a lot of people say, well, see there, she's proven proven that language is innate. That's news to her because that, you know, she, she says, well, maybe it is, but I don't, I haven't shown that. What about um, this, this eternal problem of the adult trying to learn a second language? Because it seems like children have this, uh, well, uh, dare I call it an instinct, <laughs> a magical ability to... You can call it peanut butter if you want. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where, where they seem to have this... Um, ability to, to learn a language and learn it to a very high level, uh, just like a native speaker. And then adults very, very rarely uh, have the same ability, even though, even though they, they are obviously more intelligent. Well, it's not clear that they're more intelligent. But here, go through the, uh, let's, let's go through the arguments. Can children learn languages fast? Yes. Is that all they can learn fast? No. They learn everything fast. They're little, they're pruning their brain. They're learning what not to know. Um, they're just making all these decisions. We're born with a lot more synaptic connections in our brain than we ever need. We're pruning them most of the time and, and doing some others. So children are uh, in the wonderful position of having all these connections and narrowing them down. 
adults have already narrowed them down. They're literally in what we call a rut. Uh, and now they got to build them up again, which takes effort. It's a different, something different going on in the brain. The other thing too is that as Piaget noted many years ago, a child's first language is the construction of their identity. They are, their language helps define who they are. They have no other way to communicate. The motivation to learn that language is absolutely fundamental to them. So they're constructing an identity, learning to communicate, acquiring the only communicative device that's currently available to them. Now take an adult. They have a different kind of neurological task, which is to build up synapses instead of uh, weakened connections. Then they have, uh, they're not building an identity, most of them. If you're a businessman working in Brazil, you're probably, everybody's talking to you in English, your chauffeur speaks English, you're going home and talking English to your family. Now, all you need enough is to get these guys to do whatever you tell them to do when you get there. Um, and, and so, and the same thing if you're a Brazilian businessman in, in the U.S., get these guys to do whatever you, it is you tell them. I mean, there's no real strong, you have an identity. You're the boss of the effing company. Now, if you're a missionary, um, your motivation is different, um, but it's still not the construction of your identity. Um, it's, there are a few adults that are very gifted at this sort of thing. Um, and, you know, like there are a few adults that are very gifted at piano and gifted at uh, you know, writing, there's all kinds of stuff people are gifted at. We don't fully understand this, so, except to know that talent and giftedness are culturally defined. You could be a great physicist, it's not gonna get you anything among the Pitaha. You gotta be a great hunter there if you wanna get people's attention. So, so what counts as talent or ability just really uh, depends on what the culture values. Uh, there are lots of people who, who, you know, we have a heterogeneous output of uh, cognitive abilities although they're shared fairly similarly. You know, probably um, if we use Chomsky's example of a Martian, um, our genius and talent is probably just slight little aberrations uh, from the Martian's perspective, you know, uh, and cultures and, you know, stand up and applaud for some things and not others. So, so all kinds of reasons why second language learning would be more difficult. There would be less motivation to do it. It would be, uh, you know, cognitively more challenging when there's less motivation and we've got all kinds of other things going on. I mean, what's the child got to do, right? They got to learn their language and eat. They, 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 they can be pretty focused on that. The adult has a lot of other things to do. It's just not at all clear that um, there's any lesson to be drawn from the fact that adults have a more difficult time learning language. They also have a more difficult time uh, learning lots of other stuff. You know, children learn lots of stuff fast. Adults tend to know what they want to know and screw the rest. And so it becomes hard for them to learn this other stuff. So just as a, just as a kind of small little sidetrack, because I've seen you play the guitar and you're amazing at playing the guitar, right? You know, I, you hear stories about um, people who are really good at something like playing the guitar or the piano or playing tennis. They hate it when people say to them, wow, you've got a talent for that because Talent seems to be just a result of thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of practice. I started playing the guitar when I was 10, and all through my high school years, I probably paid, played 12 hours a day. I, I did very poorly in school. I just played 12 hours a day because I liked it when girls came over to here. So sex was the biggest motivation for learning to play the guitar, and I worked at it really hard for a long time. 
you know, it's like when I tell people learning, I do these monolingual demonstrations where I show people how you can learn a language with no language in common. And I work for maybe an hour, two hours and show them that you can actually learn a lot about the language in that short a period of time. And I said, now you just do that uh, twice as long every day for 10 years and you got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, it. There's no magic to it. You know, people say, oh, you couldn't hear some of those sounds. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, but I will hear them. I just have to keep working at it. I'll get it all figured out. You know, um, most of the music we learned when we were in rock bands uh, in Southern California in the 60s, I mean, we didn't, we read music, in fact, all of us read music, but we rarely, never looked at the music. We just learned by listening to the song. And um, we listened to it over and over, and we practiced, and we practiced, and we got uh, good, and we got flexible. So, yeah, there's a lot of effort that goes into something, and then at some point, you know, it seems effortless. You see Paul McCartney play just about anything, and he's just stupidly brilliant. Somebody said, what, what could that possibly mean, stupidly brilliant? I said, it means I'm too stupid to know how he's that brilliant. Because uh, <laughs> he's, just, he's just crazy good. But uh, so he clearly has, I, I wouldn't deny that I have some ability, uh, some place in my brain that helps me to play the guitar. But I also would say that there are probably a lot of people who have even more of that than I do who can't play the guitar as well as I can because they haven't worked as long. And I don't work that hard at it anymore. I mean, I play maybe, maybe 30 minutes a day these days. So I, I sort of, you know, I, I gave a, I, my, my band got together after 45 years and we gave a concert back in our hometown. And some guy came up to me and says, wow, you're amazing on the guitar. I said, you should have heard me when I was 17. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot better then. I've only gone downhill. Um, and and so, you know, all these things are a lot of work, learning another language. My Portuguese, I would say that, that when I was living in Brazil full time, I could, and I still, when I visit Brazil, I can fool a lot of people into thinking that I'm Brazilian. But if you get out of practice, then after a while, you know, I do find myself giving a lecture and a word that I would have known right away. I haven't, I have to think and, um, and, you know, people will come to me and they'll say, oh, you speak such good Portuguese, but... Um, we would have said it this way. And, you know, my daughter, when it's a given example of adult versus daughter, my daughter went to school in Brazil. And um, after her first semester, I was invited to give a lecture at her school in Portuguese. And we had both been learning Portuguese for the same amount of time. It was about six months. Afterwards, she was grinning. She was like in, what, sixth grade. And she was grinning. And I said, what are you grinning about? She said, you said some things wrong. <laughs> <laughs> she thought that was great that she knew that and I didn't. <laughs> you know, she, she was actually speaking it more than I was. She was speaking it better, but she was also speaking it more every day. All of her friends were Brazilian. And uh, uh, so she was totally immersed in it. And I eventually made myself get more immersed. We moved away from other Americans and we spoke Portuguese in the home and uh, for most of every day. So it's not a mystery that adults have a, more of a problem. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that, that actually I saw somebody ask in an internet forum. And I was like, wow, that's really... Because I've never asked you this question. But since, um, since the Peter Ha language um, lacks recursion, what, what happens when they, when they learn a second language like Brazilian or even English? Um, do, how, how do they sort of cope with, the, with those structures? You've fallen into my hands. Uh, they don't learn those languages, but what, I mean, they, there's no Pinaha who's fluently speaks Portuguese. However, 
a colleague of mine who visited the Pinaha a couple of times with me, Jeanette Sackle, who teaches in England at the university, uh, at a university in Bristol, the University of West of England, went there and she's actually published two separate papers on the Pitahas learning Portuguese. And what she shows is that they don't use recursion in Portuguese. And the Portuguese connectives that normally show recursion, some people don't, don't have those. And others who are starting to learn a little bit of recursion in Portuguese um, are starting to use those. So it's exactly what you would expect. If they don't have recursion in Pitaha, they're not going to put recursion in Portuguese. Uh, but they do have recursion in their brains. And so the more they learn Portuguese, the more they learn recursive thoughts. I mean, recursive uh, language. So uh, it's totally consistent. Um, and I'm very happy that she wrote those papers, not me. Yeah. And, and uh, well, get, get ready for this because, you know, here's, here's another criticism coming your way. Um, directly under that, this question that someone had asked on this, on this forum, uh, someone said, well, um, what Dan is doing is he's just basically saying that there's this hierarchy of languages and English is better than Peter Ha because it has recursion and um, and and therefore Peter Han is an inferior language because they can't they can't do it. Yeah, I've heard that a lot of times. These people have never read anything I've written because I've addressed all of this multiple times. Recursion has an important function in language. It also has an important function in thought. In terms of thought, Peter Ha have recursion. How do I know this? Because if you look at their story, recursion folks like Chomsky only look at sentences. They do not look at stories. And so with, with stories, you can see the Pinaha without using recursion in any individual sentence, structure their stories recursively. They have themes within themes, sub-themes, less, sub, less important themes and more important themes. So this is recursive thought. So we're only talking about sentences. So, you know, you could say that they're inferior because they don't have subordinate clauses. That seems rather stretch. But the, the, the function of recursion is to pack more information into every sentence. That's important in a literate culture and in a culture where there's, a lot of, where there's not much environmental noise. I mean, it, it, it is an effective way of transmitting more information per sentence. But if you live in an environment in which there's a lot of noise and you want to be able to recover from interruptions of sentences, then not having recursive sentences and building all the recursion and repetition into discourse instead, and you hear lots of repetition in Pinaha's stories, um, is a way around this problem. So it has nothing to do with inferior. Recursion is a, a tool, just like golf clubs are a tool. And the fact that the Pinaha lack golf clubs doesn't make their culture more in, inferior to anybody else's that has golf clubs. It's a, it's a totally bizarre way of thinking that people you know, would think that there's this hierarchy of, there's no hierarchy of languages. Languages are built on symbols, Pitaha just as much as English. And people structure those symbols according to different tools. So you can go from linearity, which is a fairly simple way of organizing it, or you can go to recursion, which is a more complex way of organizing it. But that's just at the level of the symbol. Once you start building stories, Chomsky's biggest problem and the biggest confusion that comes up time and time again is that people take the sentence as the basic unit of language instead of the story. And once you start to see the story, a lot of these differences disappear. Somebody came up to me after a talk in Germany and said, 
So you're saying that at the level of the story, you and Chomsky don't disagree. And I said, yeah. I mean, the only reason we disagree is because he chose to make the sentence the sentence the uh, center of the universe, and it isn't. Um, so the whole debate there is about the structure of sentences. Um, but here's an interesting thing. If you go into a new culture and you want to work with the best language teacher possible, you might ask somebody, who tells the best stories here? Um, but you would not ask anybody, who makes the best noun phrases? And, uh, you know, so, so these are just, these are things at totally different levels, you know. Storytellers and great authors in America talk about the ability to write the sentence, the, the great sentence. That's very important. But the most important thing is telling the great story. And you can have a lot of shitty sentences in there, but if the story is really interesting, people are going to buy the book. They're going to get turned on by the story. Um, so, so Hemingway has one way of writing sentences and uh, Prost has another way of writing sentences and uh, Chomsky has another way of writing sentences. And uh, it doesn't matter who has the best sense. That isn't, it's not even clear that makes a lot of sense. But you're going to find less recursion in somebody's writing than other. You're going to find a lot more recursion in literacy. People who say that culture cannot affect language have never looked at literacy. And they've never, I mean, as soon as you learn to write your language, it changes. Um, and there's a literate language and a spoken language. If you, if you study African-American vernacular English, you find all kinds, not just of word choice differences, but of grammatical differences. And these are reflected these are reflections of the culture. These are cultural values. Rap, which in, in many ways, in terms of its form, greatly exceeds in complexity and, and brilliance the average construction of the 40 to 50-year-old white male. Um, and, and, and the average white American could not possibly participate in a rap duel with an African-American, which is something very common with them, in which the entire structure of the language, the velocity, the grammar chosen, the way recursion is built in and left out, um, these are all affected by the culture. So having recursion or not having recursion is no more, no more shows that one language is superior to another than the ability to uh, fry eggs or eat raw eggs. I mean, this doesn't mean anything. I'm just, I'm just sitting here wondering to myself, um, isn't isn't a sentence just an arbitrary kind of definition anyway because like i mean i i know that hundreds of years ago they used to write in in scriptia continua you know there was no punctuation it was just this big stream of stuff i mean actually uh, you know it's not arbitrary because a sentence is does correspond to what log logicians call propositions and these are very important units a proposition is the communication of basically a single verbal meaning with the required verbal arguments. That's a linguistics definition of it. In Peirce's definition, a, a proposition is, is a complex symbol. But So Pinahan do have sentences that correspond to propositions. Every, every language has to be able to express propositions because that's how people think. But it's not how we think completely. So Peirce said that a complex a proposition is a complex symbol, but an argument is a perfect symbol. And so you've got to have multiple propositions working together to communicate something whole. You know, so Socrates is a man. Well, okay, that's uh, that's that's a, a symbol. That's a complex symbol. Uh, it has it has symbols in it, and it together makes it a more complex symbol. But um, all men are mortal. Socrates is mortal. Therefore, Socrates is a man. Or all men all 
uh, all mortal, you know, you could say it in any number of ways, that syllogism, but that itself is what Peirce would have called the perfect symbol. So in other words, he was looking to stories and discourses of which arguments are a part as, as where we ought to focus. And, and had Peirce uh, lived longer I sus- and developed a theory of linguistics, although that was less important to him, then, then we probably would have overcome this fixation with the sentence. So I don't think it's arbitrary. It's just like saying that grammar is about words. It just stopped too soon. You know? So sure, I can have a theory about how words get together, but people want to know how those are used in sentences. And the same thing goes, I can have a theory of how sentences put together, but ultimately we want to know how those get put in texts and discourses. Chomsky's teacher, Zelig Harris, defined the transformation. He was the first one to introduce the term transformation. into, And it was a relationship between two sentences based on how they were used in discourse. So John was seen by Mary, and Mary saw John would be transformations, not in the sense for Harris that one was produced from the other, but that they have discourse, different discourse functions. So if I'm talking about Mary, I will probably say Mary saw John. If I'm talking about John, I will probably say John was seen by Mary. Um, so they have different, different functions. And it's been argued that there are languages in which all sentences in a text are passive, and others that claim that all sentences in a text are active. And those produce, according to the anthropologist Greg Urban, those produce different kinds of cultures. Language is complicated, and there are various perspectives on the relationship between language and culture. It's a symbiotic relationship. There are various reasons why we learn languages differently at different times in our lives, and all of these have to do with human biology. Even culture is only possible because of human biology, but this doesn't mean there's anything specific in human biology. The greatest part of our biology, as as I've said, is that we're evolving away from these kinds of specific instincts to a much greater cognitive freedom to be able to do a lot more stuff than corn can do. My, my, my penultimate question is, you know, there, there are a lot of kind of physicists out there who are, who are looking for the theory of everything, this kind of neat formula that might kind of unite everything that we, that we can possibly ever understand about the universe. And I'm, I'm wondering how you feel about the idea that there might be some kind of universal explanation for for human language is that is that a nice idea to you or is that kind of abhorrent no that's a great idea i think it i think we are getting there and i think it's semiosis it has nothing to do with uh, what chomsky's been working on for 60 years it's, it's pretty much unrelated to that that's an orthogonal thing that i believe i predict i won't live long enough but i predict that it's going to fade away uh and people will wonder why we all we spent all this time on that. And already a lot of people think that, but that's just my personal opinion. But I do think that there is uh, a theory, it's called semiosis, and that's where language and culture, in fact, all science, Peirce worked out what he called the architectonics of science and how every science fit with another science. So a theory of everything, um, as long as physicists realize that physics is also a process of semiosis. It's uh, our whole, we can't have a theory without semiosis. And so what we need, you know, there are more, there are people working in biosemiosis now. There are books coming out on, on uh, semiotics in the non-human world. Um, and, and this is a whole new area of research. It's not so new, but it's still a, a minority position for a lot of people, but there's a lot more work coming out there. I spent, you know, I've, I've been a linguist since uh, I took my first linguistics course in um, 77 
you know, so that's 43 years ago. So in 43 years, I would say that, uh, you know, 25 of those years was just working in Chomsky's theory and, and having this same perspective on language. And it's only been in the last three or four that I have <clears throat> been looking for uh, other uh, things and, and uh, found them uh, in the relationship between culture and language and, and then come to realize that uh, semiotics is, in fact, the glue that holds culture and language together. So, so j- just to finish up, what, what is it that you would like to, to kind of, what is it that you would like people to understand about um, the idea that, that language is grammar? I would say that language requires grammar just like it requires sounds, but it's no more, um, language is no more just a series of vowels and consonants than it is a grammar. Language is about meaning, and the only way to approach meaning is through a theory of meaning that involves uh, signs and symbols. We've known this since Sextus Empiricus and um, the, the, the medieval grammarians, and we had you know, the so-called dark ages. The medieval grammarians were some of the best of all time. Um, and getting back to the roots and looking at these traditions and not thinking that uh, the discovery of grammar is either new or even all that crucial uh, to understanding language. These are very important uh, thoughts to investigate. Thank you.